men. What seems only appropriate after the last couple weeks, the events of the last couple weeks, the loss of a good friend in our church, the terrible killings that have taken place this last week in our country and then in our city on Thursday night. It just seems appropriate to come once again to another psalm of lament, of crying out to God. Like Colin said last week, these lament psalms in the scriptures, they actually make up a third of all the psalms. So that's about, it's roughly 50 psalms out of 150. And it's because God knew how much we would need them. He knew how much and how often we would need to sing them and say them and pray them. And so even in the writing of words on a page in Scripture, God meets us in our lamenting by lamenting for us, by giving us words to lament with when we don't think we have anything left to say. Young Christians, young theologians, I have a couple things I want you to be thinking about this morning as we walk through our psalm. My wife Ellen, our, our daughter Aubrey, the three of us at home, we talk a lot actually about doubt. We talk about doubt. We talk about doubt because I struggle with doubt. Ellen struggles with doubt. Aubrey struggles with doubt. And doubt is any time we're going through a period where we're finding it difficult to believe, to hold on to what God has said, what parents have said, what friends have said. We're doubting what we've been told, specifically when we're doubting what God has said. We talk about that a lot at home because we struggle with doubt. And so here are questions that I want you to think about this morning. What should we do with our doubts? What should we do with them? Where should we take our doubts? With whom should we doubt? Think about those things. And let's come together and enter into Psalm 77. And in its depths, we will grieve together, we'll doubt together, remember together, and hopefully even begin to heal together. This is the good news of Jesus the suffering priest, as we find it in Psalm 77, verses 1 through 20. It's printed on page 6 of your bulletin. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then I said, I will appeal to this, 
to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. But God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep troubled, trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And our God, we ask once again by your Holy Spirit that you would make the presence of the Lord Jesus tangibly known to us this morning that we would know him and feel him and sense him as our suffering priest, that we would know that he suffers with us, that he is among us, that he knows what it is to feel lost, just as you do, Father. Help us to see these things and in these things and the gospel and the good news of all that you've accomplished in him. Let us find comfort. Let us find healing even as we grieve and doubt together. Do this for us. In the name of the Son and by the Spirit, amen. You can be seated. Well, recently a good friend asked me this question. He said, John, tell me who your favorite superhero is. It may surprise a lot of you to find out that that friend was not Cameron Mullins. But that's only because he asked me that question a long time ago. Like most people, I see the occasional superhero movie. I can't say that I'm a huge fan of the whole genre. But for some reason, it really didn't take me a long time to come up with an answer. I told my friend that my favorite is Batman. But when I thought longer on why I would choose Batman, I began to realize that that my choice of him, it probably says a lot more about me than anything else. I began to realize that I like the myth of Batman for the same reasons that so many generations have liked kind of the lore of the cowboy, the, the lawman, the gunslinger of the great American West. He's a loner. And don't bother me with all that Robin business, Robin. Robin does not belong in a Batman story. Batman is about Batman, by himself. Robin. He's a circus performer. He's not a crime fighter. But Batman, he's a loner. He's a a self-sufficient man who tackles problems by himself, and he he just powers through adversity. He always comes out on top, no matter how many the bad guys are, no matter how bleak things can look. 
I like Batman precisely because he doesn't have superpowers, and yet he's considered a superhero anyway, because that's just how well-trained and how disciplined and how intellectual and smart he really is. And it's all due to his own doing, his own determination. He outthinks his opponents, he outstrategizes them, and then he outfights them. And all the while, he maintains untold wealth and social allure. I mean, it's about as ruggedly individualistic, it's about as American as you can get. Which is why neither Batman nor many of us, including myself for sure, would have written Psalm 77. Because Psalm 77, it isn't about self-sufficiency. It isn't about finding solutions to problems, to sufferings, by thinking really hard about it, or training hard enough to endure it. And it certainly isn't about the individual overcoming obstacles. In Psalm 77, Asaph, the author of the psalm, he's completely undone. His community is undone. They're facing suffering and loss that's beyond any of them to fix, beyond any of them to escape, even beyond any of them to make sense of. And so Psalm 77, it's about one thing that Batman is not. It's about grieving together and doubting together and healing together. Psalm 77, it's, it's what we call a community lament. It's a psalm. It's written by one man, Asaph, who was a choir director in the tabernacle worship system set up by King David. He's a choir director, but Asaph wrote the psalm for the purpose of identifying the community that he's a part of and then ministering to that community. He was a musician, but he was also a priest, like Moses before him and like Jesus after him. And in this psalm, he's doing what every good priest does. He's identifying with his suffering community, and then he's encouraging that community by helping to connect them with God's presence and God's truth and his comfort. This is a community lament, and we know this not so much from the first half of the psalm, but from the second half. Because in verses 15 through 20, the psalmist is clearly speaking words of encouragement to all the people of God. He speaks a lot of the people of God in those verses, which means that his really highly personal language in the first several verses, where he says, I, 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 again and again, is meant to draw his audience in by identifying with the suffering that they're all feeling. He's a representative for the group, for the community, and what he's feeling and thinking. And experiencing. And you can see that he expresses the suffering in really strong language in the first four verses. He mentions crying out verbally, crying out loud, twice in just the first verse. In the second verse, he mentions moaning and tiring of his sorrow because it's been going on day and night. His body stretches out. He's prostrate 
on the floor, on his bed, reaching his hands out high. His soul refuses to be comforted. And it's not a statement of stubbornness. It's, it's not a statement of hardness of heart. It's, it's a statement of how deep his grief really goes. It's the same statement that Jacob makes in Genesis chapter 37 when he hears the report that his beloved son Joseph is dead. Jacob couldn't be comforted because the grief was too great. And Asaph feels the same way. Whatever the cause is for Asaph's grief and the grief of the community, and we don't know in this psalm, whatever it is, it runs so deep that it's, it's brought them to the physical limits that their bodies have for expressing their grief. And yet those physical limits that they have are not enough to express the fullness of their grief. They run out of strength and ability to express it. They've run out of tears to cry, and their hearts feel just as heavy. And so we see in just the first two verses something that's very important. God doesn't intend for us to remain silent in our grief. He doesn't intend for us to remain silent in our grief. There are times when, for the sake of others, we have to set it aside Granted, there are times we have to set it aside. We have to plan. We have to make some decisions. We have to lead well. We have to maybe follow well. But we better not put that grief aside for too long. We have to go pick it back up. And then we have to express it. Why? Because it's part of of living in truth. It's part of living in reality. It's part of living in honesty, and that becomes really, really important because of the next part. Because, because as difficult as Asaph's suffering is, all of this really extreme language used to express it, and I don't mean that to say that the language is hyperbole. I think this is actually expressing how bad things really are and how bad he's really experiencing them. But as difficult as it all is, it's about to even get worse. It's about to get more difficult because the one who truly has all the answers, who knows all the why, the one who has all the power and control over the suffering that this community is going through, that one is going to be quiet. That one is going to be silent. And that's going to raise a consuming doubt in the heart and in the mind of Asaph in the community. Verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate on God's truth, we can presume, my spirit faints. Verse 4. You, God, Hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. In other words, I can't sleep, God, because you won't answer me and give me rest. 
I can't even speak anymore because what can I say when you remain silent, God? Is what he's saying. And so Asaph, he's doing here what we as a church have been telling each other to do for the last couple weeks in sermons and in emails and in texts and phone calls and prayers and Facebook posts shared by many of us. He's turning to remembering. That's what he's doing. He's remembering right here. And we've talked a lot about that in the last couple weeks that we remember God and His promise. We remember what God has done in the past. That's one of the things that we do when we're grieving and we're hurting. And Asaph is doing that. He is turning to remembering right here in verses 3 and 4 and 5. He's remembering the blessings of God from the past. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years of long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. And this is most likely a song of joy and happiness, a song of celebration about good times and blessings that God has brought before. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my heart made a diligent search. Asaph's, he's doing the work of remembering. He's doing the work of meditating on God's blessings. He's cataloging. The blessings from God in the past. He's focused on God. He's running to God. He's looking to God. And to him, it makes it feel like it's, make, it's harder. It's making it feel more difficult for him as he's doing this. Because Asaph's real dilemma in this psalm, it's, it's similar to the problem that he's going to have in the next psalm he's going to write. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, I mean, a lot of us have heard that psalm before. We've heard it even preached in our church in the last year or so. Psalm 78, it's it's the famous psalm of Asaph where he asks the question as to whether the wicked will always prosper. I look about me and I see the wicked prospering all around me. How can that be? And that question bothers him because it brings up serious questions about the character of God. That's why it's so difficult in Psalm 78, because it's bringing up doubts and questions about who are you, God? And actually, that's exactly what Asaph is now going through here in this psalm, too, in Psalm 77. Really, it's it's the character of God that starts to become in doubt for Asaph in this psalm. Look at verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Asaph, he's not just saying, well, I mean, he's not just saying, today's really hard, today's really difficult, and I'm in such pain, and You know, I really just wish things could be better like they were last year. He's not just saying, how could I get God to start dispensing blessings again like he's a big vending machine? How could I do that? No, that's that's way too superficial for him. That's not what he's doing. He's really troubled by something deeper. In this psalm, Asaph is asking the question, what is God like, really? 
I used to think that he was gracious, but the incredible suffering that me and my people are going through, it's making me really wonder whether that's true of him. That's what he's saying. And so we learn another incredibly valuable truth right here. Because Asaph and his community were able to be honest about their suffering, instead of trying to minimize it or escape it, they can now enter into honesty about their doubts. Because trying to bear your suffering by yourself, always trying to be silent about it, to minimize it, to never allow others to bear your burdens with you, means that you will also try to deal with your doubts by yourself. You will doubt and question by yourself, which is maybe the worst pain of all. And so what did Asaph, what did Asaph and his community, what do they do with their doubt? They take it directly to God. They take it directly to his feet. That's what this psalm is. Asaph is taking his suffering and his doubt to God. He's not carrying it away from God as though answers to his questions are going to be found in some sort of a distant land, in some new experience, in some new relationship, by moving to some new exotic place, by changing jobs, by seeking out a new philosophy or a new religion. No, he's taking his doubts about who God is directly to God's feet. That's what he's doing. And this is faith, actually. This is faith. What he's doing is an expression of faith. Those who are honest about their suffering and honest about all the doubt that suffering's produced and they collapse again and again and again at the feet of God in all their messiness, I think it warms the heart of God. I think it warms the heart of God. I think it brings tears to His eyes. I think it brings tears to his eyes in in some way that's more than what I'm saying, but definitely not less. I think it shuts the mouth of the lion. It shuts the mouth of the enemy because now he can't say, See, God, I knew your children loved you only when you blessed them. See, God, I knew your children were only fair-weather friends. I've been saying it for years. He can't say that anymore. When the people of God suffer together and doubt together and bring their suffering and their doubt to God's feet. And this is what all the Psalms of Lament teach us in Scripture. Because the message of the Bible is not... Don't ever doubt. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not, don't ever doubt. The message of the Bible is, doubt and faith. The message of the Bible is that the presence of faith 
The presence of faith, the reality of faith, always includes the presence of doubt. If we never doubted, I mean really and truly, like if we never had any doubts, if we never had any questions or concerns, then we would either have complete unbelief or we would have complete certainty and knowledge. But you and I need faith. You and I need faith, and that means the presence of faith is always going to have the presence of at least a little bit of doubt and sometimes a lot. Because we live at a time and a place when we are waiting for God to do all the things that He's promised, but we have not seen those things yet. We look in a mirror darkly. We're waiting. We're wondering. Some days our faith is strong and it burns brightly and our doubt feels small and some days it feels like our doubt outweighs our faith because that is the world in which we live in right now and the time in which God has us. And so they exist together. You and I need faith. But Jamie Jackson and John Horn And so many others that all of us in this room could mention and name, they don't need faith anymore. They don't need it anymore. Because they know. They know. They have certainty. Their doubts are gone. But doubt and faith exist together in a difficult relationship. In a difficult relationship. And in this psalm and every other, God's children are invited to doubt together. They're invited to doubt together. In Islam, you're shamed for your doubts. In secularism, you're told that if you can't have complete certainty about something, then you must maintain disbelief until you do. But in Christianity, you're invited, you're welcomed, and you're hugged by the very God that you struggle daily to believe. And that's different. That's very, very different. And so one of our goals as a church, as a local body of Jesus' disciples, one of our goals should be to make this a safe place to doubt a safe place to struggle, to question, to hurt. I don't mean that we're encouraging these things. We're not calling these things good or sought after, but we are saying that these things are a reality. And so we're welcoming each other to do them together, to enter into doubt together, because we are doubting alone anyway if we're not doubting together. So let's do it together. And let's do it towards God. Because the Lord suffers with His people. And He chooses to tangibly wrap His arms around us by using the rest of us. He sits with us in our doubts by sending His servants to sit with us in our doubts. He weeps with us as His church bears one another's burdens. 
So when we shrink back and away from the people, people of God, thinking that it's going to be easier to suffer alone, we have no idea how much harder we're making it on ourselves. How much more difficult it will be for us to notice and feel God's tangible comfort. Because no Christian suffers like she who suffers alone. And no Christian doubts God's promises like he who doubts alone. And so the psalms of lament, especially the community psalms of lament, call us to bring our messiness to God together. But as Asaph and his community, as they grieve together, as they doubt together, note where this takes them. See where it goes. Note the direction it goes. Because verse 10, it's, it's really the pivot. It's kind of the turning point of the whole psalm. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Because up to this point, remembering and meditating on God and His blessings has not brought comfort, but only more doubts. But Asaph, he doesn't stop remembering He doesn't stop remembering. He doesn't stop meditating. He just turns his meditation to a new place. The years of the right hand of the Most High. The right hand is a place of strength. It's the sword hand. It's the hand of power, the hand of deliverance and rescue. Because the only tangible answer Asaph has to hold on to in the face of his doubt is what God did to redeem him and his people. That is the only remedy strong enough. He can't just look back on good times. Asaph doesn't settle on the good crop that God gave last year. Asaph doesn't settle on a previous battle where God gave victory. He doesn't even settle on how many children he has and how cute they are and how wonderful family life can be. Because even though God is the author of every blessing, no matter how big or how small, Asaph's pain and his loss are so great that blessings of those kind can be swallowed up. Last year's crop can be swallowed by this year's famine. Last year's victory can be bloodied by this year's defeat. Loved ones can be lost. And so Asaph needs something stronger. He needs something more permanent to answer his question. And do you know where he goes? Do you know where he settles? He settles on the defining moment in Old Testament history where God claimed his people, where God bought and paid for his people, where God rescued his people. Asaph goes to the exodus. He turns his memory to the wonders of old in verse 11. He meditates on the mighty deeds of God in verse 12. His great redemption of his people in verse 15. And then he gets as specific as possible as to the event that he's talking about, the event he means in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. 
The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's talking about the Exodus. It's a beautiful, poetic expression of God's saving power when God parted the waves of the Red Sea. Because you have to understand that Old Testament Israelites, they looked back on the whole Exodus event. They looked back on that entire event as the defining moment of their redemption and their rescue as a people. The Passover with, with, with the lamb's blood put on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over them as he brought judgment on the Egyptians. They looked at the Passover in the same way that we look at the cross of Jesus. Because it was meant to prefigure and point forward to the cross of Jesus all along. And the great crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptians, it was viewed the same way that we look at the resurrection of Jesus. When death was defeated, when enemies were placed under God's feet. In fact, even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 writes of the Red Sea crossing as a foreshadowing of Christian baptism. And baptism pictures our death with Jesus and our resurrection to new life with Jesus, as Romans chapter 6 says. And so healing begins for Asaph and his community when they turn their attention to a delivering God a rescuing God. And we can do so all the more because we have so much more of God's story in front of us. In fact, we can do more still than Asaph because we know our God not to just be a powerful God and a rescuing God, but a suffering God too. Because this psalm, it ends, it ends on a very tender note after this massive display of power, he tells us at the end what it was all for. It was for God's flock, for his people, for us, in verse 20 is what he says. And at the cross, the waters of judgment at the cross were not closed over the foreign enemies of Israel but over the only one who could go down into the waters with the hope of coming back up again. At the cross, Jesus takes on much greater enemies than world superpowers and their military might. He takes on our sin and our curse, death itself. At the cross, Jesus' way was holy, as verse 13 says, He himself was the Holy Lamb of God. At the cross, Jesus' way was into the sea of judgment, as verse 19 foretells. Even at his death, the signs of God's same judgment were all around. Even at Jesus' death on the cross, dark skies and thunder and lightning and shakings, the same things the psalmist is talking about occurring 
at the Red Sea crossing. But at the cross, judgment doesn't fall on Egyptians. It fell on a single Israelite in order to save all those who would become true Israelites by faith. By faith in his death and in his rising. As Colin said this last week at Jamie's funeral on Thursday, the answer to our suffering isn't cerebral. It isn't the solution to a mental puzzle. The logic to our suffering, the why, the logic to our suffering, it wouldn't make sense to us even if God told us. And so he doesn't. Instead, he suffers himself. He suffers himself because that's what we really need. What God is great like our God, Asaph writes in verse 13. It's something that we can proclaim, not just because our God delivers from suffering, like when the people, they sing this same line, they sing what God is great like our God in Exodus 15 that Brian read earlier, that great song of deliverance after they had walked through the Red Sea. They say the same thing, what God is great like our God. And we can sing that, because God delivers from suffering, but it's something that we can proclaim because our God suffers with his people too. What God? What God is great like our God? What God does that? He became a priest, much better than Moses and much better than Asaph, so as to hang from a cross and look down on his disciples Look down on you and me and say truly and really, me too. I get it. I get it. And I'm going to take you through it. And then I'm going to do away with it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we are a hurting people, not just in our church, but in our city, in our country. We feel division. We know the sorrow of murder. We know the sorrow of loss and death. These have been heavy weeks. And we are glad that you invite us into the reality of that heaviness, and yet you offer us hope in the midst of it too. You let us lament, you let us doubt, and yet you give us faith and you give us hope. In you alone are we invited to grieve, and you alone are we invited to doubt, and yet to do so as those who have hope. Because we have real hope. We have real hope because of what your son has done. Your son gives us hope, not just because he identifies with us in our suffering, but because he alone can actually bring an end to it. He alone can crush it. He alone can do away with it. He alone can wipe away every tear from every eye. He alone can put 
death and all of death's friends under his feet someday. We look for him to do it. We ask that you send him soon to do just that. Father, draw us to the truths of what Jesus has done. We sang this morning, come, long expected Jesus. We know that he suffered with us. He came to do just that, and yet we know he's also coming to bring an end to it. So we say, come, long expected Jesus. And in the meantime, through us, bring comfort to one another. Through us, bring hope to one another. Through us, let us remember that our God is greater than all the other gods. Who is like you, O God? The God who loves his people so well. Let us remember these things together as your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.